Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Manxiety Podcast. We're your hosts, Ashad and Matt. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe so you can get notified of new episodes. If you want to share this with your friends, you can find us on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Manxiety Podcast. Hashtag Manxiety Mondays. Uh, I always forget to hashtag that, but but I, I should do more. Um, anyways, we're, we're back again. We have a very, very special treat for you today. We have a um, an author, a speaker, so many other things as well. A wealth of knowledge today for you. Um, we have on our show Pellegrino Riccardi, who is the author of a book, uh, Drowning Quietly, and a, uh, well, I guess the subtext of it is Memoir of a Man's Shortcomings. It's a great title, um, and we thought that this would be really uh, beneficial for the listeners, highlighting kind of like, you know, giving us some perspective on men's struggles and kind of the path that uh, Pellegrino has taken. So Pellegrino, if you want to just jump right in, give a quick introduction, and then we'll get started on chatting. Wow, thank, thanks, for, thanks for inviting me on the show. I think you, you did the great introduction. I mean, what else can I add to that? Yeah. I feel really good now, all of a sudden, just with that little introduction. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great to be on the show. Uh, brilliant name, Manxiety. I love that. I saw that. I thought, what a brilliant. Why isn't anyone else? Why didn't I think of that? Manxiety. <laughs> Beautiful. Love it. So Thank yeah, you. I mean, yeah, here I am. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Pellegrino. Um, now, your your new book, Drowning Quietly, Um can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the book well, what the book is about? Um, is this your first book? Have you had others? Uh, you know, yeah. I guess just a little bit background yeah. about um, your life as an author. Yeah, it's uh, it's my second book. My first book was ten years ago, written in Norwegian because I live in Norway. I've been in Norway now for twenty six years, twenty seven years. I met a Norwegian and moved over here. Uh, so the first book was in Norwegian. It took ten years to write the second one. It's the classic nine years thinking about it in my head. <laughs> and then and then lockdown came along and I finally got my arse in gear and, and actually wrote it. So the book is basically about, well, it started that um, I did an unimaginable thing. I, we, we, had a, we had an incident by a swimming pool with my youngest daughter. Um, a, quite a traumatic incident. Um, I won't, I won't, I won't put the spoilers in there. You can read the book and find out. But basically I was responsible for her and I walked away. I mean, who does that? And the book started as a kind of a big question mark. What kind of a man does that? You know, what made me walk away? Why on earth would I do that? And it was a journey and discovery to find out why I did that. And what I found really quickly was as I, as I answered that question, which became the book, I started to discover myself, and this is the important part, by, the, by looking at myself through the eyes of other women. So my mother, my wife, my two daughters, who do they see and do I like what they see? Uh, and some of it's okay and some of it isn't. And what the result of all that was, I had to describe, to know who I was, I had to describe how I felt. I had to basically develop a language for describing emotions, which I didn't have before. And when you don't have a language and not able to express yourself and who you are, it felt like I was drowning quietly. 
you know, I, I, you know, it's sort of, I want to say things. I want to share things. I want to talk to other men about things. And A, I don't know how to do it. And B, if I do it, I don't think they'll respond that positively towards me because men don't do that, right? So you sit there and just suffocate, drown, whatever. But it wasn't healthy. And so that's you know, what became the book. Yeah, that's very, very relatable. I, uh, you know, for a very long time, it wasn't until years after I had met my now wife that I was actually able to start kind of like you sharing emotions and talking about that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, I, you know, kind of grew up very much bottled in, not able. Uh, I, I like the way you said you didn't have a language, right, to, yeah. to share the emotions. Yeah, I felt very much the same way. And now that you say drowning quietly, it, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of how I felt. Right. You know, I, I, I felt the... There were things I wanted to say, right? There were emotions I wanted to share. I just didn't know how to. And I didn't know if it would get reciprocated or how it would uh, get accepted by others, uh, whether it was men or women. Right. And in there you have the ultimate irony of the title that it's, it's a little girl in a pool who's too short to breathe, right? And it's me as well. It's, it's the parallel thing. And I found myself being overwhelmed by the whole incident and just learning this new language. You ask guys, how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm bad. Pissed off. Oh, man. Don't even, don't even ask. And then, and then where do you go from there? It's a pretty basic emotional language, isn't it? It sounds so, like so uh, the vocabulary of a kindergartner. <laughs> Yeah, right. So I started thinking, <laughs> I need to describe these things. How do you do that? And, and one thing I, I don't know if suffer is the right word, but I suffer from is anger. I've got a lot of anger inside me. Why? And, and is there another way of describing that anger? What's underneath the anger? Are, what other emotions are there? Is it, am I afraid? Am I nervous? Am I anxious? Am I lonely? Am I you know, what is it? And I started digging and digging and digging and teaching myself to speak this language, which I put into my book. And it was really difficult. It's like learning a, a foreign language. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. You know, we kind of before the show, we were kind of talking about our backgrounds uh, and where we come from. Mm. And something kind of along uh, this journey that I discovered was uh, I'm Armenian, and in Armenian, there there is no word for feeling anxious. Oh wow! There, yeah, there, there's just it doesn't exist. When you say when you want to say that you're feeling anxious, what you say is I feel uncomfortable, and it's it's such a it, there kind of within itself shows how much uh, you know, kind of maybe these older cultures what they how they portrayed these feelings, right? There was really no way to portray well, well, language, this language emotion. Language reflects the culture. Language reflects your culture, right? Language right. reflects what you do and what you don't do. I mean, by trade, I am a linguist. I studied languages way back in the day. So it always reflects. So, for example, here in Norway, where I live now, Norwegians are quite laid back. They're pretty laid back people, yeah? Which is a good thing. Yeah. They, don't have, they don't have their own word for sense of urgency. 
doesn't exist. You're right. Because language reflects the way you are and the way you behave. Yeah. So if men are not sharing feelings and not talking about them, they don't need to know about feelings. They're not going to have a language for it. True. And that's really what I was trying to discover. What is the language? How do I describe it? And I end up telling these stories about me growing up. And then I quickly found out that a lot of what I do is some kind of shortcoming. Failure, but not a failure. You know, I was coming short all the time. I wasn't quite reaching my goal. Also because the bar is so high for men, right? Often the bar is set so high. We're constantly striving for that high bar. And while we're doing that, we're trying to look invulnerable and strong and invincible. And then 20 years down the line, we're getting heart attacks. It's not good for you. Yeah. It's not yeah. good for you. Yeah, it reminds me of a, I think it was like a joke I saw online or something. And it's like, men only have two emotions, hungry and horny. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and that's how a lot of us <laughs> tend to think about it, right? It's like either I'm hungry or I'm horny or this or that. And, and like you said, that anger is kind of what bubbles up to the surface of everything mm. else. Mm. Because I see it like a, like a pressure cooker. Yeah. Everything is, is, is getting pushed in and you have to release the steam on it. Yeah. little by little and that's talking about it and having the language like you said and if you don't do it well then pressure cooker is essentially just an explosion right. if, if you don't take care of it right that's and right. and that's when the anger comes out because you know how do you talk about um you know your shortcomings right so how did you get to that point where you were able to say like i'm i you know the bar's here i want to be there i'm here now like how how did you internally have that conversation with yourself well, when you have a traumatic incident happen in your life, it's almost as if you have no choice. You have to do something differently. And like I often say, um, I often say that the, the best choice in life is when you have no choice. I just felt so broken. I had to do something about it. That's, that's, that's how I started. And anger was the thing I talk a lot about in my, in my book. One, because I have a lot of it. Two, because here's the thing I've discovered. Of all the emotions, probably the most legitimate one for men is anger. You know, when you get angry as a man, it's kind of okay, right? It's, okay. it's kind of okay. I mean, we've just seen a major incident happen in California where anger was displayed. I'm referring, of course, yeah. to the slap. Yep. It divides opinions, sure. A lot of people think it's okay, actually. And what was interesting is a lot of the women thought it was okay. You know what? Yeah. I wouldn't mind a man defending my honor now and then. So it's a legitimate emotion, anger. And that makes it even more difficult to deal with because not only is it one of the few outlets we have, but it's also legitimized and normalized. Therefore, we use it. Uh, and there uh, must be some other way to... There has to be other emotions that, well, we do have them and we should be able to display and talk about. Definitely. Do, do you think part of the reason why men display anger primarily is because it's, it is the only acceptable way to show our emotion? Yeah. And also shows, anger shows some kind of strength. I'm, I'm doing the inverted commas in midair. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's, but, what, but, but what it really does... What anger really does, uh, this is my theory on it. I don't know if it's true. I'm not a psychologist, but I love observing people and myself, okay? Anger keeps people away. 
which means they can't get close to you, which means they can't see your vulnerabilities and weaknesses. How about that? Yeah. And so hurt you. Kind of a, it's a paradoxical, I get angry, A, because I'm allowed to do it. It's okay for men to be angry. It's normal. And B, no one wants to go near an angry person. It's like, it's like going near a, the, the, the word, the expression I use in my book is, it's like um, going near an Icelandic geyser, you know, these things that sprout steam from the earth. You're right. not going near there. In fact, when you go to Iceland and see these geysers, they don't even have fences around them. You don't need a fence around it because nobody's going near it. <laughs> so, so you're keeping people away, which makes you feel lonely. However, by keeping them away, they don't get close enough to see your vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Right. So it's kind of okay, but you don't feel okay. You, you further increase that loneliness, right? Right, right, exactly. By doing that uh, instead of kind of the other way, instead of having that community and others around you to help you get through whatever you're going through, you're, you may be lonely already and your anger kind of further makes people go further away exactly because the hardest thing for a lonely person to do is to reach out right right what do lonely people normally do we've all had bouts of loneliness and depression what do we do we go and hide we go down yep. to our little man cave and we hide yep when we should really be doing the opposite right but but that would be showing vulnerability that's not going to happen i'm not doing that i'll get angry instead yeah <laughs> so, yeah it's, it's, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? right? The more angry you get, the more you push people away, the more, and, and what you need, exactly what you said, you need people to come close and help you understand why you're angry in those moments, yeah. you know? Because, yeah, loneliness is terrible. And then when you get angry at your, and, and if you start getting angry at yourself, then it gets really bad. And, and that's what I've noticed, especially during like the lockdowns and stuff. Where I'm like, well, I can't really see as many of my friends but I want to see them. I want to hang out, you know, and in today's hyper-connected world, yeah, I can, you know, text them, I can Zoom with them, but I'm also like, well, they're they're not reaching out to me. So maybe they don't want to be my friend, right? Like, why, why aren't they talking to me? And I think everybody just like needs to realize that it takes, it takes work, right? Relationships, it's, it's a two-way street and it takes a lot of communication and dang, when that's the first thing that goes, man, I'm getting all these memories flooding back, of, yeah, you know, absolutely. the past well, few years here. It takes work and it takes, uh, it takes work and it takes uh, the willingness to show some vulnerability. It's that word vulnerability again. Everybody talks about vulnerability is the big word now, but it's not softness. Vulnerability isn't softness. It's not weakness. It's really difficult to be vulnerable. It's one of the most difficult things to do for men and women, not, not just men. Yeah, but it is the only way. It is one of the only way, well, at least one of the best ways to connect with people. No, definitely. I mean, if your buddy reached out to you and said, "Listen, I'm really struggling. I need help." What would you do? You would say, "Hey, why didn't you tell me before?" Court, I'm here for you. You'd need to be a psychopath to say, "Listen, uh, you know, you need to go and see somebody else. Uh, maybe you should uh, go and see." So I haven't got time for this. You know, you're yeah. dropping everything for your buddy, aren't you? You're going to help him. No, definitely. I mean, we, we, we've talked about that previously, right? That, that's how this whole podcast came to be is because me and Matt were vulnerable. We opened ourselves to each other, shared how we were mm. feeling, what we were going through. Mm. And that was really the catalyst that helped us get better and overcome a lot of what we were going through. And also what made us realize that we're not the only ones going through this, right? There's 
thousands, millions of men struggling and they don't have an outlet and they don't know what they can do to to feel better. Similar to you, right? They don't have that emotional language to share share it with. Exactly, Ash. And what you said there's so important where people often say, why be vulnerable? Well, if nothing else, you'll quickly see that you're not alone in being vulnerable. There are so many others out there who are feeling the same, but just can't, they don't have the language or they don't, they just can't get themselves to, to express their vulnerability. So make the first move. I'll tell you what, it's like the first domino falling. Yeah. You know, you're not alone. There are other people experiencing the same things. 100%. And it's, it's exactly what you said, the first domino. It's so amazing how many friends I've talked to and I'll say like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a really big uh, proponent of mental health, mm. uh, you know, making sure that you're okay first before you, I always used to work in the airline industry. So I'd always say, you know, like if there's any type of uh, critical event in an aircraft, you put your own mask on first, right? right? Yeah. And then you help everybody else. You need to make sure that you're safe, you're feeling secure before you can start helping others. And so many people, because oh, you want to be selfless in society. They just want to help, 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 help. But then they're not getting their needs met. And then they're feeling like like they're, they're lacking, they're different. And um, every person I mentioned that too, and I think a lot of times too, when we were speaking earlier about language, right? A lot of guys won't use the term anxiety. They'll say, going through a lot. Ah, you know, work is tough. Or maybe they'll say stress. So if somebody, one of my friends says, oh, I'm really stressed today, that's my trigger to say, okay, Let's dig in. Let's talk about what's going on. And when you ask a couple of those follow-up questions, you see them kind of like panic for a few seconds, right? Like, well, you actually want to know about work and and why I'm angry and, and this? Like, yeah, tell me. And then once you kind of get past that initial stage, it's it's really beneficial, I think, for everybody. It's it's so the foreign. The bravest men around are those who go first. They break yeah. the ice, right? They're the bravest, actually. We'll look back and think, those guys, they, they were really brave, those guys. The first yeah. to go. Yeah, I love the term um, brave, something that I've been working on with one of my buddies because we have a lot of chats, just we'll mm. talk about what's going on in our week, you know, goals we're working on, right? And it's very open and honest space. And instead of calling it a safe space, he's started calling it a brave space because he's like, this is a place where you can step up and be brave. Like safe mm. space is so overused now, right? It just, it doesn't mean anything. But it really is brave of you to, to get up in front of somebody and say, look, I'm struggling. I need this from you. Can you help me? Right. Here's another thing for you, Matt. The brave uh, or courage, the word courage. Uh, my parents are Italian. Both of them are Italian. Courage in Italian is coraggio. And that word coraggio, the most important part of that word is the first three letters, C-O-R, which is the old Italian for heart. So in order to be brave, you need to be wholehearted. It's all your heart. You can't be brave without being all in. It's all of it. It's all of it here. All my heart. I love that. That's I really love good. that kind of angle on the word brave. It's not. It's not only about strength and 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 sort of confronting fear. It's having the heart. So I love that that it's a brave space because that's a space where the heart is too. Yeah, I agree. How, speaking of your parents and your Italian heritage, how do you think your father's parenting style influenced your own relationship with your children? Well. I used to think not very much until I started writing the book. <laughs> and then I realized it a lot. Um, you know, he's not the only guy of his generation from the 1960s, 70s in the UK immigrant who was tough, who was invulnerable. 
probably had a really crappy job. Well, he did have a crappy job, hated his work, didn't really like the country he moved to and hung out with other Italians, this kind of pent up frustrations. But he was the boss in the family. Well, he and my mother as well. There was this kind of very special relationship. They were both the bosses. Uh, they complemented each other quite well. But his, his way of fathering was, it was all about toughness, right? It was all about being strong and strong for the family and strong for the kids. And I know why he did it. Um, and then I realized I was doing the same. The only thing I didn't do with my kids ever, which he did a lot of, was the old physical side of parenting, right? Uh, if you <clears throat> listen to some of these comedians, you know, R uh, Russell Peters, the Canadian Indian, about his father, when he says, you know, now somebody's going to get hurt around here. You know, this whole physical upbringing thing. <clears throat> I didn't do any of that, but I could be really hard in the way I communicate to them, right? And, it, and moving to Norway was probably really good for me because I've gone from a really hierarchical society and a really hierarchical way of being brought up where mother and father are the bosses, to the opposite. <clears throat> Scandinavia is all about equality. <clears throat> it's flat hierarchies in society and a massive cultural shift to me. So <clears throat> Norway kind of woke me up to a lot of that. Um, and if I say so myself, I think I've done a pretty good job. I mean, I, I have changed for the better. Um, you know, I found that you still can be an authority figure, you know, which a parent should be. You provide frameworks and you provide guidelines and all that. And you can do it in an inclusive, um, human, vulnerable way where you're open to other people's suggestions and you're open to other people's points of view. And, and it's not always easy. I find it really difficult because think about having lots of power is it, it, it actually saves you time in the short term. Do this, do that, do this, do that. It gets done in the short term. In the long term, of course, it sets up this kind of atmosphere where people feel they can't be, they don't have an opinion, they can't say what they think, they don't have a part in the whole decision-making process. So, yeah, it's been a long journey there as well. <clears throat> Having said all that, I have a great relationship with my father. My mother's no longer with us, but my father's still around. <clears throat> I have a great relationship with him. Again, because I've grown to understand why he did the things he did. By understanding ourselves and by understanding others, that's how we grow. That's how we improve. Yeah. So right. I, I usually say I haven't forgotten the, some of the awful things he did to me as a child in the, on the sort of punishment side. But, you know, I forgave him a long time ago. I get where he comes from. I get it. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I'm... I'm going through a similar thing right now where I'm going to be a father soon here mm. in the next couple of months. And I've... For the first time? First time, yes. Okay. And I've, I've really um, kind of thought about the relationship I had with my father and mm. kind of why he did the things he did. And, you know, for a very long time, I, I despised it, right? kind of the way he did things. And it's not that I don't despise it anymore. I think I understand it a little bit more yeah, now that right. I'm going through that same journey. Um, I, now, I, I don't want to do the things in the same way, right? 
But I think it has taught me that his experiences and his upbringing and his struggles are what made him or are what contributed to the way that he acted with us and parented us. And, you know, there are things from his parenting that I realized that were good and were important. Mm. Obviously, you know, I, I, I kind of I am the man today because of all my experiences. And that's one of them. Yeah. But there are also things which I, I don't agree with. And it, it, I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out what parts of it I want to keep in my own you know, parenting style and what I want to replace or do the opposite of and change. So it is, yeah, it, it just, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, I've been through it three times. I've got three kids there. The youngest one's 10 now, but I received a really good piece of advice from a really good friend of mine in the UK who's a child psychologist. He said two things to me that I'll never forget. He said, first of all, you don't need to shout at your kids. You, in their eyes, you're already enormous. Physically, psychologically, you are huge. Raising your voice is just, you know, why bother? It's, it's, you, it's, it's so excessive. Right. Secondly, he said to me, he says, you can do, almost, you can do and say almost anything you like to your kids as long as they never ever doubt that you love them what do you mean i said you said i can i can i can you know say and shout no no he said as long as you can look in their eyes and you know that they love you you're doing all right that's it just keep looking in their eyes as soon as they start avoiding your eye contact you need to readjust that was a great that's piece of that's very good advice yeah no i like that i'm I'm definitely gonna take that um take that and run with it too thank so you for that i to say that uh you know even my 19 year old now and my 16 year old daughter they you know they still look at me and they laugh with me and yeah that dad's a bit embarrassing sometimes parents are right that's <laughs> what they are but of course but i know that they like me still i think that's really cool i love that that's a major achievement for me they still think their father's all right yeah, right. uh, that's good. What um, you know, in, in in the book, you talk about the kitchen incident. Yeah. How how did your marriage and family life change after that? And you know, what is the kitchen incident for the our listeners? That, wow. Without Again, getting too much into it, that. so they still yeah. read it. <laughs> well, you talked about you know some things about your father you like and some things you don't. The kitchen incident in my childhood, a long story short, was uh, an incident of domestic abuse, which I witnessed, and which I did nothing because I was a, I was a child, I was a ten-year-old kid. What are you going to do? Right. And then you know you grow up and you think, well, I'm never going to do that. And then suddenly, fast forward. Oh, I don't know exactly how many, 30 plus years. And I'm having a similar kitchen incident myself. Not as bad, but it really shocked me. I was really shocked. Wow. What, what, what is going on? What, what is this? That's a horrible place to be, right? And the amount of shame I had in that moment, I've never experienced as much shame in my life. 
again, I don't want to say too much because it's kind of important to the progression of the book. Um, but just when you think you're not going to be like your parents, you catch yourself being almost like them. I'll tell you what, that is a really dark place. So yeah. how did that change? Well, first of all, awareness of what's happening. Gratitude that it didn't end up really bad, right? Because you, you catch yourself. You catch yourself. You shock yourself and you catch yourself. But something happens inside your head. It's like clicking. By the way, this is what happened to Will Smith at the moment. You only need to read his book to understand why he clicked. I'm not defending his actions, but I know why he did it. Because he also witnessed his mother being abused and he never did anything about it. So he's grown up with this horrible sense of shame and guilty conscience that he never stood up for his mother. And now any woman who's affronted around him, it has a psychological click in his head. I think he had an out-of-body experience when he went out there. Yeah. Wow. That's that's a really good observation because when we watched it back at first, he kind of laughs at the joke. Yeah. And then he sees how it affected Jada. He and the then he gets up yeah. and, and he just like, exactly. Yeah. Years of guilt. He calls in his book, uh, Will, he calls himself a coward many times. It's his biggest sense of shame in his life. But he didn't stand up for his mother. And any woman who is affronted, he cannot help himself. It triggers some, almost, I would say, psychotic reaction in his brain. That's what happens, in my opinion. That's why he's so remorseful now. I'm sure he didn't even know who he was when he went up there. It was that kind of whoosh. Those times you've, you've lost it over some argument. You don't know who you are. You really lose it, that fogginess. Right. And I'm sure he regrets every, I'm sure he regrets doing it, but I'm sure it's not the last time he'll do it either. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you're just angry and all you see is red, right? And you just, you're no longer longer a a master of your actions. You don't know what you're doing anymore. And, um, you know, it's almost like a crime of passion or something. You don't know what you're doing until it's too late. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of shame, right? I know in the in the book you wrote that shame feeds on secrecy, and yeah. um, I want you to expand a little bit on that. But do you think that that's also part of you know Will's life still, even though he's written about it a little bit about feeling like a coward? But do you think that that's still just so embedded that it was well, a secret for a while? Move. Yeah, I mean, he's made the same move as I did with writing a book. He'll sell a lot more copies than I ever will, but it's <laughs> but for his own well-being he's made the first step right because he's talked about it that's a really courageous thing to do especially someone as famous as he is i mean there are people there aren't many people more famous than will smith right but but basically the book that these shameful things and when i even now when i talk about the kitchen incident I, I feel horrible you know i just want to bury myself but you can't do that you have to stand up and speak about it the more you hide it underneath, the more shame will eat you up like a cancer. In fact, it literally does give you cancer and other right. serious mental and physical ailments if you keep stuff like that inside. There's lots of research on this. So there's only one way, you know, shame's number one fuel is secrecy. Keep it secret, shame will grow. 
So remove the, the source, the fuel. Remove the secrecy, and what happens is, slowly but surely, shame dissolves. You'll still feel bad about it, but you'll have a lot more self-compassion. You'll be able to forgive yourself. That's the point. And then you become a human being. Not only do people want to be around more, but you, you start to send out signals that you want them to get close to you. Wow. That was, a, that, was a, that was a major shift in my life. Remove the secrecy and see what happens. And it's not easy. That's, that's huge because you have shame on one side. And if that leads to loneliness and anger, then it's just going to fuel it even further. And you might more. have to be secret about how angry you are because you're shameful at how upset at the world you are because you have zero outlet. And then that's where people do get physical. Right. And they, they just have those kind of passionate moments and take it out on other people. And I'm sure they regret those moments even further. And then it's even more shameful. So it's this constant cycle and this ebb and flow. And the way to break out of it is exactly what you said. Just you got to talk about it. We have to be vulnerable. Talk about it. Share it. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's had a kitchen incident. I'm pretty sure about that. I look around my neighborhood here and I'm pretty sure there are lots of kitchen incidents all over the neighborhood here. I'm not saying they're good, but they, they happen for a reason. Why is that? You know, you could possibly argue it's hypothetical, but had I, had I done this 20 years ago, been more open and taken away more secrecy, I wouldn't have kept that anger under the lid for so long. Then I would never have had a kitchen incident because I'd yeah. already shared and released those pressures I mean, it's kind of hypothetical, but you know where I'm going with this. You, you, need, sure. to, you need to do that before it gets... It be, and that's one of the main messages in my book. Talk to people before, A, it's too late, or B, you do something you really regret. Yeah, you know, you... It, it is. And, and, you know, just based on everything you've talked about and in general, you know, you've had a lot of pain and fear in your life. Um, and in, in the final chapter of the book, you, you recall Luigi said pain is good. Yeah. What's, you know, do you agree with the statement? Can you expand more on, on your thoughts about that? Yeah, I do actually agree with him. Um, Luigi being my brother-in-law, my wife's husband, my wife's husband, my sister's husband. That would be really I don't know. I don't know how it is in Norway, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I also talk about Italian hillbillies in the book, but it's nothing to do with that. All right, yeah. Oh, no, well, actually, uh, if you want to tell us what Italian hillbillies are first, because I'm very interested to know what that is too. Yeah, I think that's the first time anyone's called Italian hillbilly. I'll come back to that. But back to the pain is good. Yeah, I actually do agree with that because why? Well, I've got this thing. My mother used to say to me all the time, "Life is beautiful even when it's ugly." Life is beautiful, even when it's ugly. And I never understood what she meant by that. Come on, what are you saying? It's either beautiful or it's ugly. You can't have both. No, life is beautiful, even when it's ugly. You'll have ugly moments in your life. You'll look back on them and you'll think, I'm so glad that actually happened because it helped me see the beautiful side of life. In other words, you don't know what white is unless you have something to compare it with. You don't know what good is unless you have something to compare it with. Nothing stands alone. And I yeah. think pain is important in life because it helps us appreciate. It also makes us more resilient. 
You can't become emotionally resilient without experiencing pain. I read a, I read this book by someone called I think her name was Edith Eager. She was a she was a a survivor of the concentration camps in the Second World War. She became a psychologist. She wrote about this, and I remember reading a passage. She said that the children who died first in Auschwitz were the spoiled kids, the rich kids, because they hadn't experienced enough pain in their lives. They, they, life was good. Life was comfortable. And yet pain is good. And there's a lot of pain in my book, a lot of pain. I've had people reading the book, writing me messages saying, I don't know if I can read on, actually. I say, no, you, please, you have to read on. Please, you've got to read on. I promise you, the book has light at the end. I promise you. I can't say what it is, but I promise you, read on. You need, and that's what she meant, my mother. You've got to have both in life, pain and not pain. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, kind of what you said along those same lines, if I'm I'm a very big proponent of um, of, of the Stoics and Stoic oh. kind of teachings and the philosophy. Mm. And one of the big things in Stoicism is this uh, notion of you know if you haven't gone through struggle, right, yeah. then you won't ever know what you can become because there, the, the, you'll you know you'll never know how what you can grow into and what the, your full potential. You know, a diamond is made because carbon is hyper-pressurized. Carbon by itself is nothing. Without that pressure, you you would never get these beautiful diamonds. So it's it, it really is, you know, pain and and struggle make us who we are or make us realize our full potential. Or or even, you know, people who train for any sport, it'd be pretty difficult to become a good athlete without experiencing some form of soreness somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. Only one athlete that was a successful athlete that didn't experience pain at some point. So muscles no, rebuild true. when they go through pain. When we when we fatigue our muscles, they they should hurt so that they can rebuild. And it's the same with emotions as well. Emotional resilience is about putting those emotional muscles through some kind of pain, discomfort, of which showing vulnerability is one of them. It's really uncomfortable, yeah? But that makes you stronger emotionally to be able to tackle other more difficult emotional situations. And because men yeah. aren't caring with each other, they think they're tough. They may well be physically, but emotionally, they are wafers. You know, they are so fragile. They're just waiting to crack. Like little For sure. kids, right? That's the other thing about it. Yeah, we, we speak often about the brain, right? And your emotions being another muscle that you have to develop. Absolutely. And we talk about the same way you would go to the gym to, you know, make your arms stronger, your legs stronger. Yeah. You need to do, uh, train your brain to make your brain stronger and make your emotions stronger. And, and there are a variety of ways to do it, right? But being vulnerable, speaking to others is one. Meditation and yeah. other types of these uh, mental stimulating activities are another. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, we have we have lots of um, you know, it's okay to to develop your IQ, your brain, your intellect by putting it through stress. It's okay to build right. your physical self by putting it through stress and exercising. But but you know. Why aren't why aren't there emotional intelligence classes at school where you put your emotional senses through the same stress tests, right? So we can yeah. get better at them. I wish we'd had that in my school. That would have been no. Really I good. agree. Uh, it it is nice now to see that they they do teach a little bit about of of that these days. They do, uh, yeah. I I went through a leadership course, and uh, uh, one of the big topics for the course was emotional intelligence. And learning about, uh, you, you know, they have IQ, your EQ, right? And how uh, uh, advanced are you in your emotions? How, how do you recognize your own emotions? Do you recognize the emotions of others? You know, are you able to, uh, you know, manage your emotions and sort of manage the emotions of others? So, it is something that I'm glad is getting a little bit more, you know, light these days and yeah, more people are gaining understanding of it and learning more about it. Yeah, they're doing quite a lot here in Norway. They're quite good at it here, actually. That's one another thing about the Scandinavian cultures. They're very, they teach kids from an early age a lot of emotional intelligence here. A lot of the important. Skills. In fact, to them, yeah. they don't even, they don't grade kids here in Norway until they're, uh, they're 11 or 12 grades don't exist oh wow why bother with grades we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna focus on them we're gonna they don't create academics in norway until way later on in life but they create fantastic social beings yeah? people who are able to interact with one another on an emotional level it's really cool no, that's that's amazing yeah that's really great to see um it's it's crazy how there's so many things that we just don't do that we should do, you know, and that's why having the advice and passing the advice on, you know, from yourself and the book and everything, it's so valuable. Um, Cause we were discussing pain, you know, brought up a lot of memories for me as well. And I was thinking like pain can be really, really good. Like we talked about if it's productive, right? If you're working right. out and you're doing something for a goal, that's good great. Point, but yeah. there's so many people that are just struggling and yeah. they don't see that light at the end of the tunnel, right? It's yeah. not productive for them. They just, keep getting in painful situations. They're lonely, they're shameful, they're, having, they're angry at the world and they don't have that, that valve to release it. Yeah. And um, they, they, those are the people that need to be vulnerable the most, I think, right? Yeah. And they need somebody to say, hey, it's okay. And that's why I really love what we've all done in talking about it because there's somebody who might listen and say, oh, you didn't have this incident or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And they read and they listen to us and they go, Oh, okay. It's okay that I got angry. How do I do better? You know, I, I want to take what you said a step further, Matt, about people not being productive with your pain. <clears throat> I think it's less about that and more about where making sure you focus it in the right place, right? Because you can go to the gym and you can work out. Yeah. And you can have pain in all the wrong places because you did the wrong workouts right. or okay. you did it the wrong way. Right, you can hurt yourself, and that pain isn't going to help you. No, that, yeah, that that's just injury. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. if you if you've developed enough of how to do something right, how to grow your emotional intelligence, how to grow your specific muscles, and then the pain is applied to that specifically, 
I think that's when we can grow and we can get better. And what you're saying yeah. is basically it's awareness, isn't it? Of being aware, yeah. being mindful about what you, just like a good personal trainer will help you be mindful of how to train properly, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that might be, I guess I should look at the actual definition of productivity because for me, without a goal, you're not being productive. Right. Right. So it's like you need to have some type of idea where you're going. Otherwise, you just, like you said, at the gym, just doing random things and then yeah, yeah. causing injuries doesn't help. But if you look on, because um, I get asked that question quite often, you know, this pain thing, Luigi said pain. And if you Google, for example, what would you change in the world? People often say, I'd take away all the pain. I say, no, 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 no. Don't take all of it away. Yeah. You need some of it, right? You need some. You can't Unnecessary have, you can't pain, maybe. You can't take it all away. Otherwise, you won't know what good is and what joy is without some kind of contract. I, I don't think so. I th- I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a duality guy. You need both, yeah? You need both. Yeah. No, maybe just take the unnecessary pain away. The, yeah. the stuff that's not going to help anyone or do anything. That's not there yeah. for a specific reason, right? Yeah. You know, speaking of change, if there was one thing you could change from your life uh, so far, what what would that thing be and why? God. That, that's a tough one. <laughs> it is a tough one because I honestly, first of all, I know it's going to come across as a bit... <laughs> cocky in that but I wouldn't actually change that much I look back in my life I'm pretty happy I think um, I think if if I went back in time I'd I'd probably say live more in the now but get yourself a pension plan <laughs> something like that <laughs> you know do it all live in the now but get a pension plan as well and forget about the pension plan but live in the now I've I've always I've always focused so much on the future. I got that from my parents as well, you know. I mean, they I grew up in really poor background and it's it's you know, when you when you're living from sort of day to day, it's no fun at all. That by the way, that's a kind of pain that isn't caught. I mean, that's not, you know, li- living in on the poverty line, which is what we were pretty much in the UK. Both my parents had low paid jobs and but um you know, growing up in that environment there, it still made me appreciate stuff, right? Yeah. But I, I was always looking to the future, you know, like my dad did. Oh, you got to save this, and you got to save that, and you never know. And my one rainy day, and with all the rainy days, suddenly you're 50 years old, and you look back and you think, I should have done it more now. Live in the now, not be irresponsible, live more in the now, and have a pension plan. <laughs> I like that. Um, and, and another thing I'd change is I, I, I would have talked more to people about stuff like this. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I go out here. I'll have the, you know, the boys weekend, get the boys together and we'll go away somewhere, whether it's skiing or a trip to a, a London for the weekend. And we have a great time, brilliant time. Uh, and we talk and we laugh but you know, I come back, I don't really know them any better on the Sunday night than I did on the Friday night. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I may have seen another part of their body that I maybe didn't want to see, but <laughs> <laughs> because we got up to some, ended up swimming in a river or something. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? But, but on an emotional level, I don't think I've learned much more about them. That's interesting. 
Yeah, and that's true sort of across the board. Right. When You know, when guys hang out, like you said, when guys go out, they... You, you don't learn anything new about it. You, you drink, right? Mm-hmm. You party, you get up to <laughs> things like fun. jumping in rivers. <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know, you have fun, you do your thing. Yeah, you know? but but yeah, like you said, you don't really get to know uh, them any better. I mean, I, I personally prefer when I, I enjoy hanging out with, you know, big groups too, but my preference is hanging out with people one-on-one. Yeah, me too. Because that's when I get to yeah, right. really talk to them and learn more about them and see how they're doing and, you know we might still be drinking we might still be having a great time but uh, it it allows the opportunity to also learn more about each other and talk about things that we wouldn't usually talk about absolutely yeah what yeah. is um sorry go ahead matt as i say it reminds me of a, of a joke or something i saw online where it said um it's like, oh, I love having a, you know, a male best friend. Um, you know, we hang out all the time. We can share whatever. I haven't seen him in 10 years, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, so you really need to be able to foster those relationships better. So is that also something that you would have done kind of differently and moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would have done, I would have done more of what I kind of do now. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it was just too difficult then, back, way back in the 1980s, 1990s, that it is becoming a little bit easier now. I don't know, um, but yeah, that would have been that would have been good. That would have been good, I think. Good. Well, at least you're able to do it now, right? I think it's it's better now than later. It's like what's the phrase? Like the best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago, and the next best time is today. So. Yeah, right, yeah. Or better late than never. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess to maybe wrap things up, what what's the number one thing you'd like readers to take away from your memoir, from this book? If there's one thing I'd like him to take away, basically what we were talking about before, you know, the... the especially for men talking about emotions doesn't make you softer or weaker. It makes you stronger. Being in touch with yourself, you know, being aware of who you really are emotionally doesn't make you softer or weaker. It makes you stronger in a, in a, in a positive way. And I want, I want really what I want the book to do. I want, but the ideal situation is, is a couple reading the book together, one copy on their own, and it kind of generates conversations between them. I think I think men are all, men's biggest fear is opening up to women. Even more scary, you know. You know, women tell us to be vulnerable, and then we're vulnerable, and then they tell us to pull us pull ourselves together. <laughs> oh know, yeah! Come on, what do you want? Which one? Do you want the vulnerable or the strong? You know, I've seen a, a lot of accounts of this, but some, you know, along the lines of what you said, women say, I want a vulnerable man. I want this and that. And then they go out with someone. They're like, you know, that, that guy, you know, he's not, he's a wussy. He's not strong. Right. He, right. you know, he's too feminine or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they kind of, they say one thing but they really want another. 
And why uh, is that? That's really interesting. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. I, I have a few theories and I won't spoil it now. Yeah. I, I've got a theory and, and we'll see if it kind of lines up is yeah. um, that when you go through life, right? And we talked about being shameful in parts of it, angry, all this stuff, right? Not really feeling connected with everybody, especially if you're not reaching out and being vulnerable with other men. And you finally get to the point where somebody says, hey, you open up, be vulnerable with me. I'm here. I can take it. And then you start spilling all of the things coming out, much like, you know, the release on a dam. They go, no, 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 too much. Whereas if you had done it like a little bit at a time and that was just you were used to it, it's not that that cascading effect of like, holy crap, there's a wave hitting me. It's just, mm. oh, we're here together in this pool. It's not that big of a deal that you got upset at somebody at work. Right. But if you're like, I got upset at work and I'm going to beat his ass tomorrow and I'm going to go get drunk and I'm going to drive to his house. and You know, I'm going to I'm going to fight him at the Oscars. Right. <laughs> um, you know, th- then it's like too much too fast. And I think that that's what people don't want is like being overwhelmed with your feelings. So let me let me know if that kind of checks out. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, again, it's really difficult to handle um, too much, as you put it, overwhelming emotions or negative emotions, is to put a label on it. It's quite difficult. We want to hang out with people who give us energy, right? Not who kind of take it away. Um, I, you know, I think I'm kind of a fan of evolutionary psychology, which means there are certain patterns of behavior, modes of thinking in human beings that you'll never get rid of. And one of them is that the opposite sex can't help being attracted. And I don't mean sexually, I just mean as, as a person, can't help being attracted to someone who, who, who creates safety around them. And if you're, if you're showing this softness too much, I think it triggers something deep in the reptile brain that makes them feel unsafe. Therefore, they get nervous. They can't help themselves. Yeah, be yeah. vulnerable with me. And then you do it. And then something in the back of my brain, I don't know why, triggers. And, I, and suddenly I don't like it. And I don't know why. Why? I don't like it. I prefer you to be strong and invulnerable because it makes me feel safe. Ah, interesting. Which then just leads to that cycle of... Right, and then we get the signal back, don't be vulnerable, show me you're strong, and there we go again. The cycle begins again. So that's why I want women to look at this book and understand men better, so that when we do that, we say, I'm here for you, I hear you, and send signals back, I admire you. Yeah. Because that word admire is really important. That word admire is really important for men, I think. Admire. Not I respect you. That's something else. I admire you. I think yeah. men, a lot of men are looking for admiration. I think a lot of reason a lot of the reason why men are lost today and have this anxiety is because they they, they want to be admired, don't we all? And we're finding fewer and few things to be admired about. Will Smith no, isn't definitely. being admired. Not by the Hollywood holier than thou's, at least. Not anymore. But two weeks ago, probably. Yeah. Right? Now he's not even in the academy anymore, right? And there's something else happens. It's like he's not being admired. And we're looking for admiration. I really think that's really deep rooted in men. You know, you know, our deepest sense of shame in men, correct me if you think I'm wrong, is being perceived as weak. Whether it's intellectually no, weak, physically weak, can't look after my family weak, can't look after myself weak, 
my job isn't good enough, my salary isn't good enough, my sexual prowess isn't as good enough. Do you know what I mean? Any form yeah. of weakness is our deepest source of shame. So women, back to the question, what do you want them to take away? Read the book, understand men better for all our fallibilities, receive us with open arms and just say, listen, I admire you. That word makes us feel strong. Yeah. Allows us to be vulnerable and softer, but strong at the same time. Do you think that that comes from that same evolutionary perspective, right? The feeling weak, because back then, if you if you felt weak, if you were weak, right, you yeah. didn't. Well, one, you probably died because some animals or something else got yeah. you, yeah, or some other men. You know, you couldn't fight against them, um, or any any number of things, right? Before we had kind of civilized society weakness automatically meant that you were a goner you you didn't get a woman right you weren't yeah. able to reproduce and continue exactly. kind of your lineage exactly. i think that's really derailed you're gonna like what i'll tell you now and this is in the book here's a little spoiler i talk about beards you guys have both got really good beards <laughs> i could never grow a beard i've tried it just i'm looking at ash's beard particularly i'm thinking wow that's some beard man <laughs> i mean now beards why did men wear beards um, they wore them because uh, because it would often keep us warmer on the face, but they had a really an additional function. They helped to hide micro expressions like fear so that when you went into battle, you didn't show your adversary you were afraid. Because fear is often seen in the eyes, obviously, but also in micro expressions around the mouth and the lips. Right. So the beard hid those emotions. We became more blank faced, poker faced, battle ready. How about that? Yeah, that's very interesting. I I had never heard of that because, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but it makes a lot of sense. Right, it, it makes a lot of sense. Genghis Khan, yeah, massive beard. <laughs> you know, so, so it had it had it had a you know to keep us warm, but also hide fear. Yeah, I could never grow a beard. I tried during the first lockdown, the pandemic. You know, <laughs> I had about a couple of months growth. I thought, yeah, maybe some guys. <laughs> I met some guy. And he said, uh, yeah, that beard's looking good. That's going to really kick in after about a month, isn't it? You know, it's just two months <laughs> of growth and <laughs> failure. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, this this is nothing. At one point, I, you know, I had really grown it out to. Right, and it doesn't take too long either, does good it? Inches. I'm actually really envious. No, I'm, I'm Armenian. We, we grow yeah. hair in all kinds of places. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I I love talking about beards and things like that because it also touches on something that happens for I think like a lot of men too. We're like we're not, we don't really receive as many compliments, you know. And most of the people, the people that are complimenting you are other men, right? And the people that are you're opening up to, same thing. And and what you touched on about the admiration part from from women, it's so true, right? If somebody says to me like, "Oh, you have a really nice beard," or, or if, I don't know if this ever happened to any of you, but like some people say like, "Oh, I really like that shirt on you." Well, that's my favorite shirt. You know, like, yeah, there you go. I'm wearing a shirt every time I see them, you know. Listen, I do. I give people compliments all the time. I mean them as well, but I'm not afraid to give them. I know in the kind of sort of the culture we live in now, you've got to be careful about what you give compliments. I'm always giving and men too. And men is men. It's uh, it's uh, shoes. See a nice pair of shoes on a man, compliment them. Because I tell you what, if a man's got a nice pair of shoes, that's not by accident. Right. Yeah. Shoes and, you know, beards, and shoes, watches, I think. Watches, right? 
Oh God, I talk about a watch. I talk about watches in the book as well. You're gonna love it. I talk about watches in the Yeah, in no, the, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, people don't realise, you know, why do you buy watches? You don't need a watch. You don't need to tell the time. Hey, it's got nothing to do with telling the time. <laughs> I agree. Right? Yeah. Very much very much a statement. Well, I'm gonna go upgrade my shoes, you know. Years ago, I told my my dad when I was first starting out, you know, working um, at a corporate job, I'm like, I'm going to go buy these $400, $500 wingtip shoes to go with my outfit at work. And he's like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Then then I ended up not doing it because I I, nobody, you know, pushed me. He's like, yeah, why would you spend all that money on shoes? And I was like, because other people are doing it and executives wear and I want to do, you know, grow my career. Um, You know, I want to emulate other people. And it was just like, no, don't do that. But, um, you know, I, I will say, speaking of compliments, Pellegrino, this has been an amazing interview. Uh, like a wonderful, you know, treat for um, our, our listeners, for sure. Oh, instead okay, of just hearing okay. me and a shot drone on. I think anytime you can get advice from people that have gone through struggle and trauma and more stuff and they're willing to share, that's just extremely crucial to help um, not just men, but women, everybody. Right. So people can see a different perspective and understand you're not alone. We're here together. And what's great about this is we're what, like nine hours apart, something like that, right? Yeah. You're in Norway, we're in the United States, and you're still seeing those same themes apply. So it's not oh, even just you and your region and your city and your house, it's worldwide. This absolutely. is something that we need to tackle together. Oh, absolutely. This is a global phenomenon, absolutely. And it's yeah. really great what you guys are doing as well. I really mean that. Um, with a brilliant name, Anxiety. You, you've patented <laughs> that, obviously, have you? You bought the domain, you must have done yeah we've uh not patented but we've definitely we've definitely bought the domain and everything yeah brilliant now what you're doing is really really important guys it's really and i hope this you know what we've talked about inspires and just kind of nudges men in that right direction go for it guys but women have got to play a part you know the old uh, cliche it takes two to tango yeah you know help us tango with you because it's not easy for us i agree and again, we, we appreciate you coming on, Pellegrino. And you know, it was a pleasure meeting you. Uh, I look forward to reading the book and uh, hopefully having you on uh, on the show again at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love and that. dive dive a little bit deeper into it as well. Cool. See you again, guys. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Take care, Pellegrino. Take care, now.